maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Today, a dip into the archive for a biblical clash from 2019, when we invited experts to explore the storytelling of the Old versus New Testaments. The event gathered a panel from literature and theology to decide which half of the good book, the Old or New Testaments, are the more revelatory reads in terms of message, literature and legacy. If you'd like to hear the episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing by hitting the subscribe button in your Apple Podcasts app. Now let's join our host, the comedian and author, David Bedil, with more... Thank you. Hello, good evening, and welcome to tonight's Intelligence Squared debate, Old Testament versus New Testament, passion, poetry, and the world's greatest stories. I'm David Deal, and you may wonder what the fuck I'm doing here. Well, the answer is I'm the perfect person to chair this debate. I'm not, obviously, but go with it. Uh, Because 
I'm Jewish. Uh, I am really quite Jewish. Uh, if anyone follows me on Twitter, you'll see that my Twitter biography just says Jew. Um, and my grandfather on my mother's side was a rabbi. He actually died quite recently, that man. He died on the occasion of his 92nd birthday, which was a great shame as we were only halfway through giving him the bumps. Uh, I'm not a believer, you should know. I'm an atheist Jew. You see, this is where I'm in the middle of this debate. Uh, people ask me, how can that be? A lot, actually. People say, how can you be an atheist Jew? And I explain that I don't believe in God, but I do believe in Larry David. That is essentially it. Uh, I did briefly in my teens flirt with Buddhism, which would have made me a Buddhist Jew, which is someone who believes you should renounce all your material possessions, but still keep the receipts. So you might think, okay, you're an atheist, but you're still a Jew, so that surely biases you towards the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But in my defense, I would say that my favorite musical is Jesus Christ Superstar. It absolutely is, which is basically the New Testament with 1970s choreography. It's the Gospel According to Seaside Special. Anyway, the jokes are clearly starting to falter, so perhaps we should get on with the debate. It's time to introduce the first of our speakers Tonight, And I know a lot of you have been looking at these people and thinking, hmm, I wonder what sides each of them are going to be on. But I could begin to release that tension now by introducing our first speaker, who will be speaking on behalf of the Old Testament. He's one of our greatest novelists, best known perhaps for winning the Booker Prize in 2010 with The Finkler Question. His new novel, Live a Little, will be published later this month. He's also, in my opinion, a fantastic newspaper columnist, and has described himself as the Jewish Jane Austen, although he is yet to write a novel called Pride and They Secretly Control the World Prejudice. <laughs> Howard Jacobson, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, now it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 28, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, thou shalt get a lot of stuff. But if thou dost not, the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an extreme burning. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness." Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. From the point of view of literature, and it's literature, not religion, we're here to discuss, those terrible words have had a profound influence. Leah, Timon, Coriolanus, even Caliban... Could any of them have raged so vehemently had the Deuteronomy curse not thundered in Shakespeare's ears? You will even find echoes of it, certainly echoes of its destructive glee in Australia's national poem, The Bastard from the Bush. Please shield the ears of any child sitting near you. You low-polluted bastards, snarled the captain of the push. Get back to where you come from, that's somewhere in the bush. And I hope that vile misfortune may tumble down on you, may some lousy harlot dose you till your bollocks turn sky blue. May the itching piles torment you, may corns grow on your feet, may crabs as big as spiders attack your balls a treat. Then when you're down and out and a hopeless bloody wreck, may you slip back through your arsehole and break your bloody neck. 
This is not a prelude to my reclaiming the Old Testament as a comic masterpiece. We are not meant to be amused by God's curses. But there is a rascally exhilaration in them, as though the language excites itself as each new curse seeks to outdo the one before. What vitality of imagination the authors of the Old Testament attributed to God. What a way he has with words, and what an understanding of the springs of human dread. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. We can actually see it external to the body, the eviscerated corpse of our future, swinging as on a gibbet before our eyes. We were given fair warning that this God never intended to make life easy for us. Adam and Eve were no sooner acquainted than they hear God's voice walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There are to be no images of this God, yet how well we come to know him. His manner of speech, his tetchiness, his jealousy, his exercise routine. A God who likes to take his voice for a stroll in the cool of the day. A God who gets hot easily. The Deuteronomy curse, remember, is directed not at our enemies, but at us. How extraordinary to imagine and revere a God capable of doing us such harm. Batter my heart, three-personed God, implores the poet John Donne. Overthrow me, break, blow, burn, make me new. No wonder he's frustrated. He's knocking on the wrong God's door. It's the single cursing God of Deuteronomy who is going to give him the rejuvenating beating he craves. The pleasure we take in displeasure is a paradox religion and literature understand. The more pain we experience, the more alive we feel. Make me new. Out of God's curse comes a revitalized sense of who we are and what we owe. With every meticulous description of all God will rip away and trample, our homes, our vineyards, our loved ones, we are reminded of all the good things God gave us. These are the stirrings of morality. There are consequences to our actions. What God has given, he can take. What he has done to others, he can do to us. With what, ye, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again, says the rabbi Jesus, with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. As a thinker, Jesus belongs in my book. It's as a sacrifice that he belongs in St. Paul's. But I'm not here to attack the religion of the New Testament, no matter that it's as anti-Semitic as the Labour Party. <laughs> as for the book itself, I prefer the musical, not Jesus Christ Superstar, the St. Matthew Passion. Music describes the soul's exquisite ascension into the arms of God more effectively than words. The province of words is life lived here on earth. Fierce and unblinking in its here and nowness, the Old Testament is the drama of the inner lives of men and women of this world at the intersection of individual impulse and God-given law. Nietzsche beheld with what he called fear and reverence the tremendous remnants of what human beings once were. Abraham on the point of sacrificing Isaac, Jacob wrestling with the angel. In their titanic struggles, they reciprocate God's turbulent immersion in their lives. How could it be otherwise? They are made in his image, fashioned out of restless creativity, fierce curiosity and urgent love. That he has sometimes a strange way of showing it makes those stories disturbing. 
Does he really want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? A child whose preciousness to Abraham, God himself acknowledges. Take thy son, thine only son. And what are we to make of Abraham's willingness to obey? What we are to make of it is that we don't know what we are to make of it. We no more approve than we approve of Raskolnikov killing the old woman in crime and punishment. The Abraham and Isaac story describes a staging point in the long historical process of weighing contrary calls on our humanity. The old unwavering injunctions issued by a God whose imperious voice goes walking in our garden and the gentler familial affections. But even that makes it sound too abstract. For this is storytelling of the highest order. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. Silence as cavernous as the deepest oceans. The New Testament retold this story with Jesus playing Isaac, thereby losing the agonizing human intimacy. If Isaac is to die, it won't be at the hand of a baying multitude of Jews. It costs us nothing to despise. It will be at the hands of his father. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, God, what would you do? This is all too much for atheists, most of whom share the New Testament view that the Old Testament God isn't a very nice person. He is arguably squeaked Richard Dawkins from under the rubble of anachronistic cliché, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak. A control freak, God, surely not next to be telling us that God isn't even an atheist. <laughs> but the list rolls on. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. You can guess the rest. As an alternative to the Ten Commandments, Dawkins proposed a sort of ten suggestions. Here's what he made of thou shalt not commit adultery. Enjoy your own sex life, so long as it damages nobody else. Sex life. So long as no one gets hurt. Since when did adultery hurt no one else? I don't know about you, Mr. Chairman, but rather than have sex as inconsequential as this, I'd put myself to bed with a water bottle and read The God Delusion. You need a commandment in order to flout a commandment, and whoever has never flouted a commandment against adultery has yet to taste its terrors or its gratifications. We know what happens when mummy and daddy lets us do whatever we want. At best, we end up spiritless and disappointed. At worst, we end up atheists. The Old Testament is a harsh book. It describes with unflinching honesty what Shakespeare called the not intrinsicate of life, a knot which no redeemer can unpick. Ladies and gentlemen, redeem yourselves. Vote for the Old Testament. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv thank you very much thank you howard that was a very marvelous uh, speech and i think as near as one can possibly get on this earth to actually seeing the voice and face of the old testament god <laughs> himself uh, so our first speaker for the new testament is a parish priest who is also the presenter of the Radio 4 show Saturday Live. He was also, of course, uh, you will know, in the Communards, which means he's the only member of the British clergy to have had a number one, unless you include Take Your Daughter to the Slaughter by Judas Priest. <laughs> they didn't actually do that, but never mind. Richard Coles, ladies and gentlemen. Dearly beloved... As you might have inferred from the introduction and from my appearance, I have a particular angle on this kind of thing. Two things I want to say before I start talking about the New Testament in particular. One is that as a card-carrying, paid-up Christian and a representative of that particular body of faith, doctrine, history and practice, there is, of course, a particular way of understanding the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's something which has got a long and sometimes gruesome history, and this is in the spirit of a parlor game. So there's a certain dissonance there, a certain problematic which I hope we can live with. Um, the second thing is, of course, that it's a, uh, just to disagree with the premise of the question. The idea that you can have the New Testament without the Old Testament is something that simply doesn't stand up. One of my favorite heretics, indeed heresiarch, super-heretic of the early church, was Marcion, who was uh, active around the year 150, who, like a great many people since, looked at the Old Testament and saw that the description of God encountered therein, the Yahweh of the Jewish people, was simply inconsistent with the God he saw uh, in the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. So he just edited it out entirely and produced his own version of the Bible, stories about Jesus, and then selected highlights from the epistles of St. Paul. Um, he was somebody who believed, he was a ditheist. He believed that the God of the New Testament was um, above the uh, corruptible matter of the world. And that was the business of the God of the Old Testament. So he divorced the two entirely, running immediately into the soup with the Orthodox in the persons of Tertullian and Irenaeus, two of the early fathers, who gave that short shrift understanding that if God incarnate in Jesus Christ is not mixed up intimately, perfectly, wholly in the business of being human, then the resurrection means nothing and you don't get off home base. So, there you go. My own 
I mean, I'm like lots of people. My, I thought I knew the New Testament. I was a chorister when I was a kid. I uh, went to an English public school. I spent a lot of my time in chapel. I knew the texts intimately while I was still in short trousers. I sang them. I knew them. But it was really only in my late 20s when I came to faith. I should say I was also um, a card-carrying, signed-up atheist from the age of eight and indeed started our school chapel choir Atheists Club uh, at the age of eight, three of whom are now ordained, two Anglicans and a Buddhist priest in Stockport, but there you go. But my real uh, uh, introduction, as it were, to the, not my new introduction, but my appropriation, such as it is, of the New Testament, came later when in my late 20s, after a period of great turbulence in life, and uh, questioning and curiosity, I found myself in church and obliged to listen to these phrases that I thought I knew uh, resonate in an entirely new way as I stood trembling on the threshold of faith and uh, affiliation to a church and that kind of commitment. So in order to make sense of that, I moved deftly away from pop music and uh, towards Understanding. King's College London, indeed an alumnus of this august institution. And it was there that I went at the age of 30 to uh, study Christianity, try to get to grips with the doctrine and the theory and practice. But the case I'd really like to make for the New Testament is to do with its extraordinary, unique, unrivaled power as a cultural and historical phenomenon. And for that, I would want to look primarily, I think, at the person of Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest certainly one of the most problematic, certainly one of the most significant thinkers in the history of the world and civilization. Paul, of course, as you know, started out as a Jew, a rigorous Pharisaic Jew, taught in the school of Gamaliel, a persecutor of Christians, when Christians and Jews were in a particularly antagonistic moment in their history. The experience on the road to Damascus that we know about from the New Testament uh, completely changed him, and he became... Uh, by some reckoning, the greatest of the apostles. Certainly very significant within the context of faith, but also in the context of world history, I think hugely significant. It is sometimes said, and this is painting with broad brushstrokes, that what Paul did was take Jewish monotheism and use the language of Greek philosophy to export that out of the Jewish world into the Gentile world too. You can't really overstate the significance of that, it seems to me, in human history. And when you focus in on that, you begin to see some extraordinary things. Paul wrote in Greek, Koine Greek, which is a sort of uh, not very fancy Greek. It's quite a few notches down from the Greek of Homer, for example, or the classic Greek texts. It was the Greek of the Hellenized world of the ancient Near East, the Eastern Mediterranean, trade, commerce, uh, politics, whatever it was, was all done in this language. And that was Paul's language too. Very different from Hebrew, very different from Aramaic, the spoken language of that period. Um, and of course it was familiar within the Jewish world because the Jewish scriptures uh, had been translated into Greek, Greek into the version called the Septuagint. So most Hellenized Jews, Greek-speaking Jews at that time, would have known the Hebrew scriptures, as we sometimes call them, the Old Testament if you like, um, through their Greek translation, the Septuagint, miraculously, miraculously produced by 70 scholars working independently to uh, a common end, or so the story goes. So he was a Greek speaker, but he was also someone, I think, who was hugely sensitive to the extraordinary power 
and currents uh, and dynamism and strange dynamics and resonances and echoes of the Greek language uh, uh, that came into and started affecting, I think, Christian thought, particularly through the philosophy of Plato. And something quite extraordinary happened when Paul's immense and powerful mind got hold, first of all, of this central argument in the emerging, what was then a Jewish sect, of course. Christians didn't know they were Christians for quite a long while. Christ, of course, was a Jew. It was a kind of sect within Judaism uh, before uh, antagonisms grew so intense that it departed. And one of the architects of that was, was, was Paul. But what he did, I think, was grasp that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, was suddenly manifested in the life of this person, this itinerant preacher, this rabbi with a northern accent down from Galilee, causing no end of trouble uh, in the southern parts of Israel. Hundreds of them, of course, stand on a hillside in first century Palestine, if you'll allow me to call it that. Of course, there's controversy around that. Throw a stone, you'd hit a dozen of them. But what was unique and special and distinctive about this person was that he started making claims for himself that the expectation in Jewish scripture um, of the coming Messiah was fulfilled in this person. And that's the critical relationship in Christian tradition between the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament considers itself to be, in its descriptions of Jesus Christ, uh, explaining the fulfillment of the prophetic tradition in the Old. If you're a Christian and you're brought up in that tradition, if you read the Old Testament, you think basically it's a long preamble to a nativity play. One of the most interesting things I've had is reading Isaiah with a rabbi, with someone who doesn't think that the whole of the New Testament is basically a preamble to a nativity play. Fascinating. Another, that's another argument. But what Paul did was get hold of this extraordinary um, doctrine of monotheism, put it into Greek, and take it out of the part of the world that he grew up in, out into the world, out into the Gentile world. And it became the idea that stormed the world and took everything before it. There's so much more I can say about this. But that's what I, what I would say, before we engage with the, the kind of detail of that, you cannot overstate the significance of the New Testament in terms of its power in shaping the world, then and now. I can't think of anything to rival it. Amen. Thank you, Richard. Okay, so uh, uh, to continue to upend your expectations uh, tonight, our second speaker for the Old Testament is a Christian novelist, a regular contributor to the Today programme's Thought for the Day, a slot I think should be extended to humanist and atheist thinkers, but we'll perhaps have that debate another day. Please welcome, in the meantime, Anne Atkins. Thank you. Both of the men had been trained for this moment their whole lives long, and yet they were excited as little children. And you're ready to give it to us? I am. Now? Now, said Deep Thought. They licked their lips. Though I don't think, added Deep Thought, that you're going to like it. Doesn't matter. We must know it now, now, now. Now? The tension was unbearable. You're really not going to like it. Tell us, tell us. All right. The answer to the great question yes. of life, the universe, and everything, yes, 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 is yes. 42, said the computer with infinite majesty and calm. Even the most important answer in the world 
doesn't make any sense without the question. Let me put it uh, the same point another way. I'm going to tell you the funniest sentence, apparently, in English. The punchline, which obviously is the funniest bit of the joke, of what has been voted the funniest joke in the world. It goes like this. Okay, now what? <laughs> now, the trouble is that even the funniest bit of the funniest joke in the world doesn't make well, an awful lot of sense without what comes evidently self-contained. The fact that we've had thousands of years of Judaism, the fact that there are millions of believing Jews in the world, testifies to the fact that the Old Testament stands alone. But as Richard has so kindly argued for our side, the New Testament is completely meaningless without the Old Testament. When I was a student, um, I was mystified that there was a a guru that you've probably never heard of called um, Sai Baba, who seemed to have done all the miraculous things Jesus had done. He was healing people. He was raising people from the dead. He even brought himself back from the dead. I don't know how good the evidence was, but that's what his believers taught. Why, why was he not as famous as Jesus? Because there was no context. He was just a trickster, a, ma- a ma- magician. And Jesus is, would also be completely meaningless without the context. Um, as, as Richard has also demonstrated, Marcionism died out within a generation. Marcionism was a religion that tried to rely on the New Testament alone without the Old Testament. It doesn't make any sense. The, the difference between the New Testament and the Old is a bit like whether you prefer answers or questions. Many of you may be addicted to this in the morning. A crossword, right? It's got all the clues and it's got blanks that you fill in. I bet none of you are addicted to this. The answers to yesterday's crossword with no clues. Completely pointless. And that's a bit what the New Testament, well, totally what the New Testament is like without the Old Testament. Let's just take um, Jesus, I mean, I could give you hundreds of examples of this, I haven't got time, but just a couple of examples of Jesus' own life. Who are you? He was asked. Are you the Messiah? I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. We don't need anything else. They all said he was worthy of death. Nonsense, if you don't understand the Old Testament, if you've never read the Old Testament. It doesn't make any sense. He says something that seems meaningless, and everybody says you should be killed. Put it in context, Daniel In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven, given authority, glory, power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Do you see the context is everything. Without it, Jesus would be nothing but another Sai Baba. Or take this one. Um, who, Who are you? Abraham looked forward to my day. What do you mean? You're not even 50. What do you mean, Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. They picked up rocks to kill him. Why? Because they all knew this. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses hid his face, afraid to look. Who shall I say you are? I am. Tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. Of course he was worthy of death. What an outrageous thing to say. Perhaps the most telling is when we see Jesus face to face with somebody who didn't know the Old Testament. All four Gospels show the governor, the Roman governor, completely mystified. What shall I do then, he says in Matthew. What crime has he done? I don't understand. What's he done? Mark, what's he committed? Luke, I've examined him thoroughly. Once, twice, for the third time, he said, what's he done? I don't understand. In John, he says, exasperated, do you think I'm a Jew, Pilate says. He doesn't know what's going on because he doesn't know the Old Testament. 
Now, coming back to the crossword, on the road to Emmaus, um, when Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he's walking along with two disciples who don't recognize him. And he explains about his, even before he was born, Jesus's, uh, Mary's pregnancy is all from the Old Testament, isn't it? The birth is all from the Old Testament. His life, his death, his resurrection, he showed it all from the Old Testament. The scriptures show you what should happen. That's this. You should be able to work it out. You don't even need the, old, the New Testament. We only need the New Testament because we're stupid, actually, and can't work out the clues. Now, there may be many here tonight, as Howard said, who have come, you know, not so interested in the faith, the religion, whatever, but the literature. Friends, in terms of literature, there is no contest whatsoever between the Old Testament and the New. I have to confess that when Hannah kindly invited me to be part of this, I was really excited until she said, of course, you're a Christian, you'll want to argue for the New Testament. And I said, please, Hannah, please let me argue for the Old. Why? I was a member of a a book group when we lived in London. We were an eclectic mix. We were not a faith group at all. We had a Jew. We had a a recent convert to Islam. We had one or two churchgoers. We had a few who were nothing. Uh, The one eccentricity was that we limited ourselves to books of the Bible. And we studied them just like any book group would study any book. It was great fun. I recommend it. And we decided to alternate Old Testament and New Testament. So one month Old Testament, next month New Testament. Now, the Old Testament... We had myth, we had epic, we had history, we had battles, we had fantasy, we had ancient fairy tale with with prophecy in it, we had rags to riches stories, we had two books named after women, unheard of women, both of them rags to riches, women who had the most extraordinary effect on history. We had humour, a guy who gets a depressive, who gets swallowed by a fish and spat out and then goes back and does what God says and he says to God, I told you this would happen, if I did what you said you'd save them, now you make me look a complete prat. We've got drama that you don't have in the New Testament. We've got poetry. We've got erotic literature, erotic poetry, prophecy, proverbs. Now, when it came to our New Testament months, okay, so the first time we had Mark's gospel, that was great. The next time we um, did Luke's gospel, it was a bit different, you know. The next time we, uh, should we do an epistle? Well, they haven't got much plot. They've not got a lot of poetry. And they're, I promise you, a bit samey. If you've been in an evangelical church, you've had enough of epistles, really. Revelation, great, great, Revelation. But we've got all of Revelation and more in Daniel because we've got all that fantasy and imagery. And we've also got nail-biting plot, you know, in Daniel. There's only really two kinds of literature in the New Testament apart from Revelation. There's eyewitness account and there's letters. Compare that with the Old Testament, the richness of it. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night between my breasts. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love, which means incidentally love-making sex. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose, by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, 
my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full-length version right now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.